Hello and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam Etris and I'm part of the Ridge team here in Morgantown. As Christ followers, we can often wonder, what will heaven be like? Will we be busy or bored? Will we know our loved ones? Listen as Pastor Tim brings a talk from the series Homecoming, where we are exploring what the Bible has to say about heaven. We hope that this talk will encourage and inspire you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. Uh, Some time ago, I read the story of this little boy that was seen talking to himself as he kind of was strutting in the backyard. He had on a baseball cap. He was carrying a ball and a bat. And he was saying these words, I am the greatest hitter in the world. And then he picked up the ball and he tossed it in the air. He swung, he missed, and shouted, strike one. But undeterred, he once again said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he reached back down and he got the ball and he tossed it up in the air a second time and he swung at it, strike two. He stood there for a moment and he examined the bat. He adjusted his cap, he spit on his hands to get a better grip, got all ready to go, and then once again he announced, I'm the greatest hitter in the world, and then he tossed up the ball and swung strike three. And there was silence for a moment, and then all of a sudden he said, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. I think all of us have been guilty at times of changing what we believe because it doesn't seem to line up with the truth that we would like, you know? This little boy could not accept the fact that maybe he wasn't the best batter in the world and so he changed his truth as we talk about today. People these days talk about my truth versus the truth. So he just changed his truth a little bit so that it would line up more with what he wanted to believe was true and maybe he was a a great batter or a pitcher, we don't know. In some matter like this, a little matter like this, of course, it's not a big deal. But there's some things, some subjects we cannot afford to get wrong. We can't just change our beliefs because we don't, don't like, you know, what we're hearing. The Apostle Paul indicated that in the last days, people are not going to be able to endure sound teaching. They're not going to want to believe certain things are true. They're not going to have the capacity to receive certain things as true. And this subject we're looking at today perhaps fits in that category because nobody nobody likes to think about or talk about or believe in a, a place of suffering. The Bible calls hell. Today we're wrapping up our series called Homecoming and we've been talking about what heaven's like and and who's going to be in heaven and why. And then the last couple of weeks, I talked about what Jesus meant when he said, store up treasure in heaven. I gave you at least six ways in which we can invest in eternity. But it seems like we really can't finish a series called Homecoming that relates to heaven without at least addressing the question of that other place, a place called hell. What did Jesus mean when he talked about this subject? What is, what is this place like? Is it a, is it a real place? Is it just a, a spiritual place? Who goes there and why? What is it going to be like? Now, I'd like to believe that there's no such place of suffering. I'd like to think, you know, that somehow we've got this thing wrong, but 
I, I can't avoid the fact that, that Jesus talks so much about it. Jesus, this is, the, this is the Jesus that's known for his love and his compassion. The Jesus who said, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, do good to those who mistreat you. He talked more on this subject or more occasions on this subject than anybody else in the Bible. And it's because he didn't want people to miss it. He described it as being a very real place. But I know it's hard for people to accept this. Now, when I was doing some research on this, I came across a survey that was put out by the Pew Research Group, and they surveyed adults and asked the question about, you know, do you believe in heaven and hell? And the survey was conducted less than a year ago. It was November 23rd of 2021 that they published this survey. It was about uh, questions asked of American adults. And I was a little surprised by the results. 73% of U.S. adults believe that there is indeed a place called heaven. So about, about three quarters of all people. And then... This was the bigger surprise, 62% believed in hell. I guess I wasn't expecting that. More than six out of 10 adults in this country believe that there is a place called hell. I, I just didn't think that it would be that, quite that high. If the person indicated that he or she was a Christian, the numbers went up fairly dramatically. 92% of the people who identified themselves as being a Christian in its various forms, 92% more than nine out of 10 claimed that they believed in heaven. And 79%, almost eight out of 10, believed in a place called hell. Uh, equally interesting to me was this, that if someone claimed that they were an atheist, that they didn't believe in God, and I'd almost ask you to guess what you think that statistic would be, what percentage would believe in heaven and hell? 3% believe in heaven. Only 3%. And when it comes to hell, only 1%. In other words, if you lined up 100 people who claimed that they didn't believe in God, you'd have trouble finding the one or two that believed in heaven or hell at all. Now, as I reflected on that, I realized, well, that kind of makes sense. Because if you don't believe there's a God, then heaven and hell don't even make sense. I mean, why would such places exist? You know, if we're just, you know, kind of just evolved into this state we're in and it's all just an accident and then, then you, you, know, you just die. Why would there be a heaven? Why would there be a hell? But if you believe that there is a creator who created us in the image of God, who gave us some sense of right and wrong and justice and love and these kinds of things, then it would make sense. Yeah, I guess if, if you believe that there's a God that's, that's like that, heaven and hell suddenly make sense. Now, I don't, I don't take pleasure in talking about the subject, although I do admit that when I think of certain people, like a Hitler-type person, I'm, I'm kind of glad there's this place of judgment. But I don't take pleasure in this subject, and I think as Christians, I don't think we should either. It's, it's not something we get excited about. I was reading about these two ministers who were both applying for a position at a, a local church, and they were doing what's called candidating. Uh, ministers, when they're, in, in, especially in the Protestant realm of things, when they want to to get a job at a church, they candidate. And so you meet the board and you meet key people in the church, but then you always speak on a Sunday morning. And the congregation gets a sense of what you're like. And so this particular church had two ministers who were allowed to speak on any subject that they wanted to, and both of them, for whatever reason, chose to speak on the subject of hell. 
And afterwards, the second guy that had spoken was the one who was chosen to be the new pastor. And so he went to the board at one point and said, I'm just curious why. We both talked about the same subject. Why did you choose to offer it to me? And they said, well, when the other guy spoke about hell, he seemed to get some joy out of it. Like he was glad people were going there. When you talked about it, you had a tear in your eye. And I think that's more the spirit of this thing. That there is such a place as heaven and hell. And hell is as horrible as it is, as we're going to see in a minute here, is even a place that I think God, God doesn't want people there. It's God's will that all find Christ, all be saved. First Timothy 2, 3, and 4 We read, this is good, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul was talking about the importance of praying for everybody, and especially leaders, so that the gospel could go out, and then it throws in this. It's good to pray like this, and it pleases God, our Savior. Notice the description, our Savior. That's what this is. He came to be our Savior, and he wants everyone to be delivered, to be saved. He wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's not going to force people, but this is God's desire, God's heart. Now, is it a real place? I'm confident it is. If we believe the Bible is indeed the word of God, I think we have to land on that. Christians sometimes have different perspectives about various aspects of hell. And if we're honest, we have to admit like heaven... There are so many things about hell we don't know. I mean, there are many, many things about heaven we have no clue about, and there are many, many things about hell as well. I mean, we do have some indications. You know, Jesus talked, for example, about the fact that it's going to be worse for some people than other people in hell. There are some things we know, but Christians disagree about various aspects of it, but whether or not it exists and whether people will end up there, those are things that are not really... Debatable. Now, I want to today look at five passages that are found in the Bible that talk about this place. The first one is going to be in the Old Testament. The rest are going to be in the New Testament. And I want to mention up front that a lot of people, one of the arguments they make against the concept of a hell is that they say, well, why is it the Old Testament so silent about it? Why doesn't the Old Testament talk about this place? Because obviously it's really important people get it right. You don't want people to miss out on this thing. So why does it not talk about it more? And I don't know the answer to that except to say that there are a lot of things that in the Bible are not fully developed in the Old Testament but are are in the New. For example, the subject of the Trinity. We believe in the Trinity and there are hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament but it's not fully developed until you get to the New Testament and then you realize there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and Uh, But what is true about the Old Testament is that there are many verses that do talk about a judgment to come. And although the word hell, by the way, the word does appear in the Old Testament, but it refers to a physical place. It's the Valley of Hinnom. I'll talk about this in just a little bit, but in the Old Testament, there was indeed this place that was called the Valley Hinnom. In the time of Christ, it was actually a garbage heap. And Jeremiah, the prophet, was the first one who talked about this particular valley, the Valley of Hinnom, or in the Greek, hell. He talked about it as a place of divine wrath and judgment. So he was the first one that actually spoke of this physical place in those terms. Now, what we believe is that Jesus used this physical place 
to illustrate a spiritual reality. Because what we're going to notice here in a minute is that the references I'm going to use don't actually use the word hell. They just describe this place of judgment to come. And so when people say, well, hell was a real physical place and so there's no real place of judgment, I'm just saying they're wrong about that because most of the time when Jesus and others described what's coming, they don't use the word. They 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 don't attach it to that physical location. They just describe what it's like. Well, we do have some Old Testament references that point to this reality. One of them is in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Now, Daniel 12, and actually in the chapters leading up to it, Daniel lays out what's going to happen in the future. And some of what, by the way, I'm going to talk about here today, uh, if you don't have some of a, a spiritual foundation, I hope, I hope you can follow along with what we're going to be talking about because there is a timeline involved with some of the things we're talking about. But we know from the, both the Old and the New Testaments that Jesus the Messiah is going to return one day to reign on the earth. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we read that this Messiah, and we know it's Jesus, in the Old Testament they didn't, but this Messiah is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. And we call it the millennial kingdom or the millennial reign of Christ. And there's going to be this time of testing that's going to come on the earth. And Daniel talked about that as well. A horrible time of testing. Jesus talked about it as well. And at the end of this time of testing, this seven-year period of distress, Jesus is returning. And something happens when he returns. And then he's going to reign for a thousand years and then we get to the final judgment. So that's the basic timeline, a time of, of testing on the earth. There'll be a world leader that's gonna rule things for a while. And then for seven years, Jesus comes back. Certain things happen. He reigns a thousand years. Then you get to the judgment. Well, Daniel, in Daniel 12, 2 and 3, is referring to when Jesus comes back at the end of that seven-year period. And he writes this in Daniel 12, 3, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Of course, this is a reference to those who have died. God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. When we die, we return to that form, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Maybe you've heard that talked about at a funeral. Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Then he says, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. Now, what we know from the New Testament is that when Jesus Christ comes back, the moment when he comes back, remember he said he was going to do this, by the way, I'm coming back. Remember, as Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples were all standing there and angels showed up and said, why are you looking up? The same Jesus, the same one you've seen go up into heaven is going to come back again. And so we know Jesus is coming back. The apostle Paul made it very clear that the moment Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, if you're a believer in Christ, you're going to get your new body, a glorified body. Right now when a believer dies, the spirit goes up to be with God, but you don't get your new body yet. And so Daniel's talking about this. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will arise, some to eternal life. And if you want to read about that, it's in 1 Corinthians 15, and then it's in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. It talks about those that when Christ comes back in a moment in the twinkling of an eye will be changed. We're going to get a new body. But the second part of Daniel's verse here won't occur for a thousand years. 
Now we know that from the rest of the New Testament. And so even though it's one verse in Daniel 12, three, it's referring to two different resurrections. There's gonna be the resurrection of the righteous to eternal life and then there's this other group and that's gonna happen at the end of the millennial kingdom. And so again, Daniel, let's read Daniel 12, three again. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life. And then a thousand years later, some to shame and eternal contempt. The word contempt there means something that's abhorrent, something that you will despise. Now notice in both cases it uses the word eternal. And you realize this again is the Old Testament and it's describing this situation where there are two different destinies where people are going to go. Now in the Old Testament there are many places that describe the fact that when people die they don't just cease to be. And so even if you look at the genealogies that are found in, in First and Second Kings and Chronicles or you look at the Psalms, you read that when somebody dies, died, it said they went to be with their fathers. And so they joined those who had died beforehand. But what Daniel's talking about is the future when there'll be the first resurrection and then a second resurrection that comes later. One place heaven, the other place which is called abhorrent, I would say, is hell. Let's move forward to the Gospels where Jesus talks about this. It's, this is one of many passages where Jesus talks about this subject. Matthew 25, beginning in verse, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, Son of Man, of course, was a reference to Jesus. It was his favorite description for himself. And the title comes from Daniel again. I think it's a deliberate effort on Jesus' part to tie in with the prophecy of Daniel. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then skipping to verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he summarizes it in verse 46. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice once again, it's eternal life and eternal judgment or punishment. It's called elsewhere in that section, eternal fire. It's called a cursed place. Notice also that this place was originally created for the devil and his angels. It was designed for the devil and his angels, not for people. So you wonder, well, how do people end up there? Well, the people that will end up in hell are those who have aligned themselves with Satan's kingdom. And this is where we begin to get this dividing line between the two. Those who are part of Satan's kingdom will end up with Satan's destiny. Those who are part of Christ's kingdom end up with Christ's destiny, including the glorified body and heaven and everything else that goes with it. Now, this is part of the reason that we emphasize around here this gospel message so much to help people understand that they need to be part of Christ's kingdom, not Satan's. Because I'm convinced that we're actually all born into Satan's kingdom by virtue of the fact that we all have a sin nature. 
Every one of us, when we're born, we've got this inclination to sin. You see it very early on. You tell a little child, did you eat that cookie? And they lie. They look right in your face, you know, I didn't eat it, crumbs coming out everywhere. We've got this nature, an inclination to do sin. We're part of Satan's kingdom, but a change can take place. There's nobody here today, no one listening online that needs to question, where am I gonna go? We can, we can go to heaven. Because when we put our faith in Christ, which is the gospel, the good news, that Christ died for us so that through faith in him we could have eternal life, we're transferred from one kingdom to the other and therefore our destiny changes. And so Paul wrote about this in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. He said, he has rescued us, referring to God the Father, has rescued, a perfect word, by the way, he's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him, in Christ. To redeem means to pay a price to secure the release of someone or something. You pay a price and you release somebody from captivity of some kind. In this context, of course, it's saying we've been, re- we've been rescued from the domain of darkness, Satan's kingdom, and we've been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. And that's why we have this hope of eternal life. We're forgiven. He paid the price. That's why the word redemption is there. He paid the price in full to rescue you. And when we put our trust in Christ, a legal transaction takes place. It's actually like a legal transaction where now you're no longer part of this kingdom, you're part of this kingdom here. Now, I want us to know it with this Matthew passage that I just read earlier about the sheep and the goats and going different places. Jesus did not use the word hell. In fact, in four of the references we're going to look at, the word isn't employed at all. And again, this is important to realize. Let me talk about this word for a moment. Hell is, a, it's, a, it's based on the Greek word Gehenna. And the Greek word is based on an Aramaic term for this valley of Hinnom. And so if you go online and you Google hell, what you're going to find out is that people identify this place in Israel as this valley where, as I mentioned earlier, there was garbage. And there's a debate on whether or not the garbage was on fire. There was a document that came, I think, a thousand years after Christ that indicated that this valley Hinnom, or hell, Gehenna, that this place was on fire all the time. And therefore, it became a fitting picture of what hell would be like. But there are a lot of people that will say, Jesus wasn't referring to some future destiny or some future place of suffering. He was talking about that, and he was just saying it's going to be hard. It was just going to be this kind of, there'll be some suffering for people to live a certain way. But this is why I highlight the point, but Jesus, many times he didn't talk, he didn't use the word. He didn't point to that destination. It did become a great illustration of what hell's going to be like. In fact, scholars today, instead of looking at this place that was burning all the time, again, a lot dispute that, they go back to Jeremiah's day and they make it real clear that what's really happened is that in Jeremiah's day, some of the people offered their children to the fire. They sacrificed their own children in the fire. And so there were bodies that were placed in this burning place and that's why actually it becomes a little better place of this hell. 
My study Bible, though, makes this point. There's just a little footnote by the word hell. The Greek word is Gehenna. It's the Aramaic term for the Valley of Hinnom on the south side of Jerusalem. Formerly, it was a place of human sacrifice, and in human times, a place for the burning of garbage. My study Bible then adds this comment. It is the place of final judgment for those rejecting Christ, and I think that is indeed the case. But again, Jesus didn't always use the word. He didn't in any of the verses we've looked at so far. So we go back to verse 41. It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. To the others, he said, come, I welcome you into the kingdom. And he doesn't actually use that word. Now, Matthew 25, there's a lot to that. And I wish I could go into it just a little bit. But we won't do that. We'll just move on to the next a section here that is 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10. Now, let me set the context for this reference. Now we're moving to the writing of the Apostle Paul. He was writing to some believers who were suffering a significant amount of persecution, and he was trying to encourage them in this letter that he wrote to them in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 10. And he was trying to help them understand several things. One is that the fact that they were suffering proved that they were part of God's kingdom and that they were actually worthy to be part of God's kingdom because they were suffering for God, and it was a wonderful thing. But then he went on to say something else. He went on to say that also, if you suffer for Christ, there's a reward. Now, I talked about this the last couple of weeks. God sees it. He's going to reward you. And Paul went on to say, God's going to deal with those who wronged you in justice, that they're going to get justice. I think it was really, really hard for the people living in Thessalonica that he would throw that in to say, I just want you to realize you can take some comfort in the fact that that judgment day is coming. But here's what he had to say in the middle of verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 1. It is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It's just right for God to do that. And to reward with, with rest you who are afflicted along with us. And so one group's gonna experience what's described here as rest, and the other is gonna experience affliction because they're afflictors. Goes on to say, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the powerful angels. There's that image again, Jesus coming back with the powerful angels. Taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the good news or the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the, presence, the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. In that day, when he comes to be glorified by his saints or the believers and to be admired by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. So God is describing this this justice that's going to take place when Jesus comes back again. And the words that he uses to describe this again are flaming fire, eternal destruction. And who are the ones that are going to face this? Well, specifically, they were the persecutors of these believers. But Paul uses two different phrases to describe them. He first of all says about them, these are people that don't know God. They don't know God. And I'll talk about that in a minute because that's really the key. 
a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't know God. And then the second description that's used of them in chapter one of Second Thessalonians is they don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word obey there means to hear under. They do not submit themselves to that message. They don't submit themselves to the message that you need to put your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ if you are to have eternal life. And so these are people who don't know God and they refuse to submit themselves to this message and these are the ones that are going to experience what he describes here. Now the key to, again, the destination you go to is who you know. My basis of going to heaven is not gonna stand up in the, the gates there and say, here I am, I've been a good person. It's going to be, I'm nobody, but I know him, Jesus. That's, that's my case. It's knowing Jesus. In Matthew 7, and 23, Jesus said these words, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I never knew you. That's, it's not an encouraging verse, but it's encouraging to me. Here's why. He doesn't say, I knew you, but I don't anymore. He doesn't say, I once knew you. These people that are supposedly doing things in his name, what's the indictment on them? I never knew you. I mean, you used my name and you did things things in my name. You probably enriched yourself in my name. I never knew you. You were never mine. That's the key. Do you belong to Christ? Do you know Christ? Jesus put it this way in John 10, 27 and 28. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, we don't need to wonder. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They know me. They follow me. You know, all I'm asking is we stop and reflect. Do I know Jesus? You go through your whole life or day after day and you don't have any acknowledgement of God or Jesus in your life. You just go through your life. You know, well, you don't know Jesus, perhaps, likely. Because... If you know Christ, you hear his voice and you follow him and he gives you eternal life. And once you have that, by the way, it says no one can snatch you out. Once you know Jesus, that's it. Let's look at a fourth passage. It's found in Revelation 14, 9 through 11. This gives us a clearer picture of what this place is like. It's, again, it's not real encouraging. These events take place again toward the end times. They're what are called in the Bible the last days. Let me set the context for just a little bit. Many of you are familiar with the idea that before Jesus comes back, there's going to be this, again, seven-year period where uh, a ruler is going to rise up who is called in Scripture the Antichrist or the Beast. It goes by both of those titles, Antichrist or Beast. And there's going to be this guy that's going to, that's going to be a ruler of the whole world. That's prophesied. In the Old and New Testament, read the book of Daniel. It describes him very clearly. It's found in the book of Revelation. Jesus talked about it. In First and Second Thessalonians, it talks about it. There's this guy, this world leader. And what he's going to demand is for you to get a mark on your hand or forehead. And if you get this mark, you're in big trouble, according to what Paul says here. 
I'm sorry, what John wrote in Revelation 14, 9 through 11. We read, and a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast, that's the Antichrist, and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. That person, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the lamb, that's of course Jesus, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or anyone who receives the mark of his name. This describes, of course, the same place. It uses terms like fire and, and torment and whatever here, but the, the additional description that really is stressful to me is it says no rest. You're just not gonna get any rest day or night in terms of this torment, if you get this mark on yourself. Now, it is important that it says here that these are people who receive the mark. It, it means, the word means to take hold of or acquire it for themselves. I mention that and make that distinction because there are sometimes Christians who've come to me and said, I'm afraid I'm gonna accidentally get the mark of the beast. And I know what Revelation says, if I get the mark, I'm in trouble. You won't accidentally get it. You know, there are people that say, well, if you get the, you know, the virus, uh, or if you get the inoculation for the virus or vaccine or whatever, you know, it's, the mark of the beast is in there or whatever. You can't get this accidentally. This is something that the Antichrist is gonna demand that you get, and you're gonna have a choice, because he's not gonna be forcing people to get it manually. He's not gonna sit you down and force you to get it, because he's looking for compliance. Everyone who gets the mark of the beast here, is someone who's aligning themselves specifically with the Antichrist. It's describing them as ones who worship him. They're saying, I'm, I'm with you. They see this opportunity. All of you have to get this mark if you wanna buy or sell anything. That's what the requirement is. And then you have a choice to make. But you won't get it accidentally. You can't get it accidentally. But the cost of getting it it's so sobering. It's a place called God's wrath and anger, a place of torment. Fire and sulfur are used to describe it. It's a place of no rest. It's a place that says it's forever and ever, which means the ages upon the ages, literally, the word forever in many contexts means the ages upon the ages, which we sometimes translate as eternally, but it's not a pleasant thing. The final passage I'd like us to consider is Revelation 20, 13 through 16, where John is describing the final judgment. This occurs at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. We read in Revelation 20, 13, then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now notice, first of all, it says they're judged based on the deeds written in this book. There's an accounting of what they did. This is just like a legal accounting of the charges against you. We don't get to heaven by doing good deeds or, or excluded from heaven by doing bad deeds. Faith in Christ is the thing that determines it. But on judgment day, there's gonna be an accounting to say, well, you're, you're guilty here. And then it lists these things, all these things you've done that, it, that proves the fact 
that you did not know Christ. And then it says death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So let me talk about that for a minute. A Christian, as I mentioned earlier, when a Christian dies, we go up to be with God. Our spirit goes to be with him. People that don't know Jesus Christ, when they die, they go to a place called Hades. In the Old Testament, it was Sheol, the place of the dead. And if you want to know what Hades or Sheol is like, when someone who doesn't know Christ, that's where they go. They don't go to be with God, so they go to this holding place called Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead. If you want to know what it's like, read Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. It describes Hades. Jesus describes what it's like. But that is not the final destiny because judgment day hasn't come yet. And so at the end of the thousand years, there'll be this judgment day. And then it says death, all those who have died, and Hades itself will be thrown into hell forever and ever. And that's the description that's used here, thrown into what's called the lake of fire. So what do we do with all this? Well, first of all, I want to say this again, that nobody needs to wonder where you're going to go. John 3.16 is just, if there were only one verse in the whole Bible and that were it, it would be enough. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish, which is what that other place is. You won't perish, you'll have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. It's simply a matter of putting your trust in Jesus Christ. I talk often around here about this idea that the problem we all face is sin. You can't fix it. We all have a sin problem. We can't fix it. I can't clean myself up. Problem is sin, the solution is Jesus because he was God's son. He lived a sinless life. He's the solution because of who he is and what he came to do. The sinless son of God who came to die for you in your place for your sin. He was executed in your place. Judgment, hell, he took for you. And he died and was buried. But three days later, he rose from the dead. And the response God's looking for is faith. The problem is sin, the solution is Jesus. And the response God's looking for is faith. And so has there come a point in your life where you've said, dear God, I know I've sinned. I can't fix it. I need, a, I need to be delivered. I need a Savior. And I do believe that you sent Jesus for me. I receive him. I put my trust in him to be my Savior. It's a simple matter as that. As many as receive him, John wrote, to those who believe in his name, God gives the privilege to become children of God. As many as receive him, welcome him. Say yes to Jesus. I want to be part of your kingdom. If you're already a believer here today, I want to mention two applications. One is that we do have a responsibility to care about the people in our world that maybe don't know Jesus because most people think you get to heaven by being good and none of us are good enough. We need a a savior, a deliverer, and a lot of people don't know that, which is a big part of what we're about as a church. We just care about the spiritual welfare of people for all eternity. The second application, if you're already a believer in Christ, is this, that in many of the references that talk about this subject, the application that's given is this, live a holy life. Knowing that that the world is going to be judged in this way and people are going to be judged in this way should give you a hint as to how God views sin. And it should cause us to stop and reflect and say, you know, I know you hate this. I can see that the, the, the sin is more sinful and ugly than I ever thought it was. If it deserves hell, then I realize it's bad. It should cause us to purpose in our hearts to live a holy life. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that um, even though we all deserve to be judged, yet you sent your son Jesus for us. 
And you've given us this tremendous promise. You said whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's a promise we cling to, Lord. We acknowledge you as our God and Savior, our Deliverer. We need you. We can't save ourselves, so we turn to your Son, Jesus, and we embrace him as our Savior. And help us to live, O Lord, in light of this reality, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.